legs up with a book and a drink Now there's that love that's making you think Bet the finger points now is that is that love the moy 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 cool down just trust me okay this is michael and we are back again for part two with the lovely lauren and jennifer burrows hello 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 so in the first chapter in this series we were talking to you lauren about everything that had been going on and of course in the first chapter all the way through you are larry and proceeding as such. But now, towards the end of that, we're just getting to the point where Jennifer is taking other positions elsewhere, and she's potentially, like, you're getting confused. Now you're left with a lot of alone time, so you're having to deal with your actual thoughts about you, your identity, and all this. Meanwhile, Jennifer is elsewhere, and you were Ross and Rachel. So, let's hear from Rachel. What (laughs) was going on at that time for you? So, it's 1997 time frame-ish. You guys have been dating for a while, and everything just seems to be just like, okay, this is my boyfriend, blah, 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 things are going. What were your thoughts at that time about how everything was, how he was, and you, and all of this? So, I had decided to take a position in Philadelphia, okay, because I had taken a position in D.C., And they brought someone in and wanted me to be a co-director. And I didn't feel like I could co-direct with that person. Oh, okay. Uh, We had very different personalities. She had given us all a test and she had pulled me into her office and said, I'm a high C and you're a high A. And every time we interact, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) So I need you to be a little bit more gentle in your communication and, you know, if this is going to work. And so I went right to the national director of food and beverage and said, I can't work with her because I'm going to make her cry mm-hmm. because I won't be able to pull back okay. because I just can't. So can you find someone else or somewhere else for me to go? Okay. And so the spirit of Philadelphia was looking for a food and beverage director and the general manager there, who was the acting general manager, who had been the former food and beverage director, was a good friend of mine. And he called me and said, do you want to come here? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, I can't afford you. I said, well, I can't afford to take a pay cut. And he said, okay, right. come here. So I wasn't thinking about my relationship with Lauren. I was just thinking about getting out of D.C. And mm-hmm. so I left. And Lauren said, well, we're supposed to live in D.C. I'm about to graduate. I've already lined up a job there. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I left. So... We were apart for probably two months after I moved to Philadelphia. And then um, in July of 1998, uh, she came up and asked me to marry her. Or Larry came up and asked me to marry him. Right. Um, And so from that point on, like, we were together. And we've been together ever since. That's amazing. So you've been together ever since. And this was now, where were you living at the time that you guys got engaged so i was actually living in collingswood new jersey okay and my office was in philadelphia um so it was right across it was equidistant across the ben franklin and the walt whitman bridge so how long did you stay up there before you came back um so we got married in virginia in 1999 we got married in 
Virginia Beach, and we um, had our reception in Norfolk in October of 99. On the spirit of Norfolk? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Although the majority of our wedding party, they were all spirit people from different right. cities. Um, but uh, after we got married, then um, we were still in the we were still in the Philadelphia area, and um, Lauren decided to, that if we were going to have a family, that we really needed to come back to the area because everybody was here. Okay. Um, and so in two thousand, the beginning of two thousand, she got a job um, with. Can I say the name of the company? Sure. Okay. Yeah. With American Funds. No. The, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. With American Funds, Here and um, she had been working at Delaware Investments in Philadelphia, and so she was in the financial industry and um, had gotten a position and moved down here before I did. Mm-hmm. And it took me a few months to come down here because I felt like I couldn't leave Philadelphia and just leave them, you know, without any leadership. And the general manager at the time had asked me to stay until they transitioned a new person. Gotcha. Um, so I did that, and the company that I worked for actually created a position for me because they happened to be headquartered down here. Okay. Um, and I had some like made-up position that was half HR. And so half you could come back. So I could come back. Nice. Yep. And um, and so yeah. So then we, you know, my job at the time was seventy-five percent travel, and I was just flying from city to city. And then we found out that we were pregnant with our first child. Okay. And so, this was what year? Um, so, she was born in August of 2001, so this is 2000. So, this was late 2000 when we found out we were pregnant with her. Gotcha. So, 2000, you're pregnant, and you give birth August 2001. How many children do you two have? We have four kids. Wow. Yeah. More branches. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Nice. Okay, so, first of four. And how was that? Were you expecting? Was this a planned child? So... Honestly, I mean, from the moment that I met Lauren, I never intended to have children. Oh, wow. I actually just intended to keep going. Lauren's very persuasive. (laughs) In my career. And I think that, you know, I mean, as soon as we were married, she was ready to have kids or even before that. Um, And I just I just didn't imagine that I would ever have four kids. Um, So it was a surprise. So for you, Lauren, was this what was the compelling drive for the family. Was this more to, okay, if I further this, it's going to go away still. Like, I love her. We're married. I guess I'm supposed to have kids, so I want kids. Is that where this was headed? Well, in my mind, I had created a future that involved me being the husband, provider, and father to our children. Right. And... I was convinced, uh, I I had a a rough time before we got married, because that was my mid-twenties, and I, my body further developed and filled out in ways that, I I was rail thin, and, which doesn't sound like, I was like six, three, four maybe, and maybe weighed 190. Holy Moses. And so I was, that's actually a healthy weight, I guess, according to... (laughs) Um, health providers, but it wasn't. I was, I was gonna say to who? I was thin and <laughs> yeah. young at the time, right. and so it, when I hit twenty-five, roughly in my mid-twenties, and right before we got married, I started like gaining, like getting a pooch. Uh, well, no, I was filling out like a man. Okay, and I struggled a lot, and so I really was committed to the the concept, at least, of 
I, I loved Jennifer. There was no question about that. Right. And I wanted to be with her for the rest of my life. I couldn't imagine my life without her in it. Okay. But I thought what she wanted was for me to be conventional um, and, and be, you know, the breadwinner, the, the strong male, you know, type. And I, I think I uh, projected on her what I thought she wanted rather than really listening to what she wanted or needed at the time. Which is furthering into the whole fact that you, I mean, you were saying from the beginning, you were basically thinking for society. Now you're thinking for her. Like you were never, ever thinking about what you wanted. You were always doing what you thought you were supposed to do. I was, I was thinking about what I thought I wanted. Like I, I really wanted I, I, I wanted to feel normal. I wanted to feel content. That mm-hmm. and and it was elusive. It never really hit me that the feeling of contentment until after transition. Okay. So you guys are starting to have a family and how did it go about that? Now there's one child, now the, then there's another one, and then another one. How did this all start to continue on? Because you said, uh, Jennifer, that you were not even planning on being a mother, let alone four times over. Yeah, and the, I mean, the other part of it is when we got married, Lauren um, converted to Catholicism or became Catholic. Right. She really didn't have any religion so that we could get married in the church. And so I was raised Catholic. I was Catholic. There was no birth control. So I don't know how I was not going to have children. Right. So after we had our first child. Yeah, um, true Catholic. You know, we just didn't think about it. And we... Well, and now you're married, so it's no problem. Right. And so, and so I had had um, I had had a miscarriage in between, and so we're like, okay, well, we'll just figure it out. And so we were trying to plan, and so I guess we started trying because we thought, oh, this is a good time because mm-hmm. they'll be four years apart, right? And I did get pregnant, and then we just didn't expect for there to be two. Okay, um, they are spontaneous twins. They're not, you know, they're not hereditary. It's just that they. They're just identical twins, and mm-hmm. we we were just really surprised. Right. Um, but, you know, we just weren't doing anything to prevent getting pregnant, so we shouldn't have been surprised that we were pregnant. I was like, how does and, this keep happening? Yeah, and, and when I said to my mom, I was like, I don't know how it happened. She's like, do you want me to explain it to you? I'm like, no, please, no. I, no, please don't explain it to me. Right, right. Um, and, you know, with when we had Jacqueline, Lauren was not only the ideal father, but she was the ideal husband. Okay. And um, sorry about the use of the female pronouns. It's just we've been doing this for so long, it's hard for me to nope. refer to her as Both him. of you speak as comfortable, and I will keep it on the <laughs> on the sidelines. Don't worry. I just want to make sure that um, anyone that's listening to the story is understanding that this is all still much before... So this is pre-transition because yes. I want to make sure to uh, to convey that understanding. There's a lot of people that don't necessarily understand. And as the listeners out there are listening, they're putting together, you guys met and stayed together. So we're trying to piece that whole story together so that way people can understand. So yeah, go ahead. And we just, we had this life that was amazing and Everyone from the outside looking in thought that it was so ideal. Right. And so many people would say, you know, does Larry have a brother? Or, you know, because... Which Larry did have a brother. Yeah, and Larry would come to work. (laughs) Like, I would always get flowers on every occasion. Larry would come bring me lunch all the time. Would even bring some of my other co-workers lunch. 
So um, every going time, above and beyond. Yeah, so every to time do, Larry walked right. in, you know, like it was like Larry was a celebrity. Right. Um, all of the people that I worked with just absolutely loved Larry, and all of my girlfriends were so envious of the fact that you know Larry was so catering, opened every door. You know, I mean, just really put me first with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when our children came, the same thing. Always putting our children first as well. Okay. Everything before her. Um, and so, you know, we had Jacqueline, and then, which is our oldest. And then we had Madeline and Isabella, our twins, four years later. And then, you know, our at that point, after we had the twins, it was even more ideal. You know, you make jokes that, you know, you might as well have built a white picket fence around wherever we were because our lives were like that. Right. Um, so um, what year was it when you had your last child? So we had Lawson in 2009. Okay. Um, so he was born in May of 2009. And that's when things started to get a little weird. Okay. Um, Lauren fell into a depression and she still was productive and doing really well at work and, you know, taking tons of clients. And when when Lawson was born, that was when we decided my company had um, moved its headquarters to Chicago. Okay. And the only way for me to stay viable with the company was to move to Chicago. And that was, and yeah, not going to happen. we realized that that wasn't going to happen because right. everybody was here. And also, you know, Lauren was a public defender and she also had opened her practice and we knew that our future was going to be with her practice mm-hmm. and not with me running around being a national food and beverage director, <laughs> right. um, which wasn't a very good, uh, which wasn't a very good job for a mom. Right. Um, so I used to, when I would leave Lauren, sometimes I'd have to leave her for four or five days at a time and I would lay out all of the kids clothes. So all three girls would have their bags of clothes like on the breakfast bar you know, Monday, and it was Isabella, Madeline, Jacqueline, and what they would wear every day. Mm-hmm. And my mom called me one Sunday and said, Isabella doesn't have, she didn't have any underwear on in church. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, she, she went to church without underwear. And so she was probably maybe, I guess she was three at the time. Okay. And so I called Lauren. I said, why wasn't Isabella wearing underwear? And the only explanation I got was, well, it wasn't in the bag. <laughs> 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 At that point, I realized that, you know, we were doing the wrong thing. Our priorities were pretty messed up. Right. And I needed to not have this job anymore. That sounds like something Cody would say. Um, so, you know, so so we changed our lives. And Lauren really pushed for this really conventional, you stay home and take care of the child. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, my aunt had been here from the Philippines. And she lived with my parents. And my parents and my aunt had been very... Um, you know, like involved in raising Jacqueline and Madeline and Isabella. Mm -hmm. And then when Lawson came, probably uh, he wasn't even, he was a little over a year. My aunt had to go back to the Philippines. And that's when I became a full-time mom, which was probably the most challenging thing I had ever done in my life. And on that Um, note, we're going to go ahead and take our first break and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. This morning at 4.50, I took a rather nifty down to an Welcome back. So we were talking about that you had just 
dropped the job and now you were going to be a full-time mom. So on the other side of things, Lauren, do you now know that children should probably have underwear on? (laughs) I think especially in church. (laughs) Exactly. So with that, uh, apparently, like she was saying, you know, priorities were all over the place and stuff like that. So now she was home. What was going on in your head while you were having to be home taking care of the kids all by yourself? Were you like, this is not the picture that I had in my head? Uh, I mean, part of me thought that because I really wanted to push myself to be what I thought she wanted me to be. But at the same time, I enjoyed the time I had with our kids. Okay. Um, I didn't like that she traveled a lot. Not that I was, I ever expressed like, you know, any kind of feelings about it to her. But, um, you know, when she would go, it would leave me again if I weren't, if, if I wasn't like in the mode of taking care of the kids at the, you know, in the moment, it would leave me to my own devices in my own head again. And so things would start to, you know, there were times when even, um, you know, when she would travel, especially where I would still find time to cross dress. And so that started to pick back up, unfortunately. And it, and it got to the point where, um, yeah, it, it you know, I have a, a wife with a wardrobe of clothes, and she didn't know I had plenty of skill at replacing clothes and doing things. And I and I thought, you know, this is wrong. I can't be doing this. I need to be the man. I need to suck it up. I thought, you know, I, I went to church, and I thought, I, I didn't believe, but I thought that if I just went long enough and I faked it, eventually I'd make it. I thought I could fake it till I make it. Like, but I ne- I didn't ever have that core belief. I couldn't suspend my reality for for religion to help me in a way that it helps a lot of people. Right, and it's great for some people and a lot of people, but for me it just wasn't logical. It didn't make sense um, because if. If there, I I would think, and I still think today, like you know, if there is a God, you know, and I'm this way, like what in the world, right? Are, you know that, how mean? Like right. why would you do that? I don't want to be tested that way. Um, but it was um, a, a very challenging uh, time because I would, even though I would, you know, stay busy, I had a nine to five job. Um, until the twins uh, were born, and right after that, I was uh, because I was in law school mm-hmm. um, after Jacqueline was born, and for the next three years, I was in law school. And then when I graduated and took the bar and started working, I was, you know, just doing work, and it just wasn't enough to keep my mind off of that. You know, it was creeping back in, and it was scaring me. Right. So. What was going on in your head as she was starting to get to the point where she was going to come back and she was actually going to leave that job and now she was going to be here full time? Well, I thought, you know, at first I thought this is great because it'll give me the opportunity to bury my head and work. And so I started teaching at um, St. Leo University. I was an adjunct professor there. And um, so I was working a lot. I was working during, you know, the the daylight hours. I was teaching during the evenings, um, nights, sometimes two courses in a term. Um, and so I just kept myself super busy, um, trying to make money, trying to provide. Our kids were in private school, and okay. um, 
you know, and we were trying to, I was trying to maintain this facade in a sense. I mean, I, at that point I knew something was wrong, but I still believed that I could, I could beat beat it. it. I really thought (laughs) I could beat it. And there are times today when I'm like, I could have beaten, if I tried a little harder, maybe I could have beaten it, but I know that's not the case and, and I'm not unhappy, but I still, you know, there's still that doubt, that shame that, that creeps in every once in a while. It makes me think that. So, now that you thought you were going to get everything that you had wanted and she was going to be at home, you still were thinking now maybe that was what the missing part was, that maybe now that she's home, I can stop with all of this sneaking around and it's just going to kind of dissipate and go yeah. away. So she, on the other hand, was saying that all of a sudden what came to the forefront was a very obvious depression. Do you recall that becoming something that was problematic that people were asking and I guess maybe not people so much as her she was approaching you about what's going on you seem depressed now she noted I, I so in our, just before 2012 so our son 9 10 11 he might have been 3 or old okay. enough to express himself okay. and and there there was a, a a point that I remember very clearly where he looked up at me because he was tiny and he said you know daddy when i grow up i want to be just like you okay um that and i'll never forget when he said it because it scared the crap out of me i thought i the last thing i want is for my son to you know feel the way i feel right. and go through what i'm going through i don't want that for him like i and i wasn't like i wasn't saying no you can't be like cuz right. nobody no, I knew what, at that point right. but i thought i don't want him to suffer like this or struggle with this mm-hmm. i didn't know what was wrong at the time and so i um it was sort of at that point that i really started getting depressed i mean it started happening earlier you know when we had our son because i thought i can raise girls that's I'm, it's not easy, and, and it gets harder as they get older. But at that age, you know, I can fluff a tutu. I I'm, I did their art projects with them. Um, you know, I didn't spend Sundays watching football. I was with mm-hmm. the kids, and we were watching movies and doing things that I thought you know cool dads would do. And I thought that you know you know I'm their daddy. I can do this. But then with our son, I thought, how am I going to mm, right. rear him in a way that makes sense? You know, for him, I wanted to be. Like, what do I do? I don't know. Like, if, what if he's interested in sports or if he likes boy things and I don't know anything about them? I didn't know. Right. I was terrified sort of that I would fail him and, and therefore fail our family because I wouldn't be enough for him. So your son was kind of the biggest blessing and a curse at the same time in the sense with you having to face yourself because you hadn't really thought about at that point thinking about now I'm going to have to pretend to be masculine to raise my son is kind of where you were headed? Yeah, I mean, it really did. I mean, with him, um, and he's an amazing, amazing kid, boy, whatever. I mean, he is remarkable. Like, he is empathetic. He is sweet. He is kind. He's strong. uh, He's strong-willed. He's funny. Like, he's sarcastic at his age, which is sometimes a little strange but that it, moment was kind of the catalyst to that, force you to face yourself it, it what's it it put it in my face and said you've got to do something um but at the time still i didn't know anyone who was trans we didn't have close friends we had had friends um through spirit that we knew that were uh, you know l 
gay, lesbian, bisexual, that sort of thing, but nothing, never like gender identity issues. There was that yeah. wasn't a thing I even still at that point understood. No, and in all honesty, I mean, I don't re- recall really hearing a lot of people coming to the forefront of talking about that un- until about within the last like five, ten years or so. People probably were ta- were dealing with that, like you were saying off somewhere else but it wasn't really at the forefront of society yeah it wasn't in like culture accepted quote unquote and and it wasn't until i was in law school and there was a law professor who um it was in my civil procedure or no it might have been evidence i think it was evidence because i took evidence with him and that was a four credit hour class it was tough he's a great professor but he mentioned gender and so for the first time and this is at regent university he wasn't doing it in a way to say Gender and sex are different, but he he, he kind of hit you that way. And so, for the first time, I heard that. And and so I'm in my I don't know late twenties, early thirties, and he says, you know, th- there's this concept of gender, and it didn't make sense to me, but it, it sort of caused me to think and pause at that moment. And that's when I started saying, okay, there's there might be something to this. Um, right. So that was before our son, but that was like the first time in my life at that point that. I had even considered that that was even a concept. I didn't have any idea at the time what that was. Right. So this is what year we're talking about. Uh, well, with, we're still at like 2011. 2011 and 12 is when I really started going into sort of a deep depression, and I reached out on my own to um, a therapist. Uh, it was a psychologist, I think, or a psychiatrist. I can't recall which. Um, but I set up an appointment. And I thought, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to try to fix some of these things and figure some of these things out. Um, So I went um, to my point. I told Jennifer I was going. I went to the appointment by myself. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't share with him my real problem. Mm -hmm. I couldn't share with him that I was having these feelings or that I dealt with this all my life. I, I... convinced him after a series of questions he asked me that i was ocd that mm-hmm. yeah that was um and, and so i was diagnosed at that point sort of unofficially but officially and medicated <laughs> OCD. for ocd right because i i was explaining all the sort of the symptoms and answering questions in a way that led him to um render that diagnosis and so he would start to give me medications and i would take the medications they wouldn't work because they weren't for my issue and there and there wasn't really a medication you could take for being trans other right. than like the, the 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 method of treatment that's proven effective for many people is transitioning but that wasn't something i could even share with that, no right that person at the time so i would get medications um sleep medications all sorts of things and and try them and try new ones and i would get a a bunch unfortunately a, a collection of medications um, because I would not finish them and try something new. Um, and in 2012, I decided to take all of them. And so that was sort of like my first thinking, you know, I can't do this. I can't beat it. I feel lost. I feel broken. And so ashamed. the depression led? It led to a suicide attempt. Now, did you leave a note or anything, or it was just kind of a rash decision? No, I didn't leave a note. I didn't plan it. I literally just took it. Um, and as I felt the medications start to sort of flood over me, I think I called Jennifer at the time and and she had come home and I was just kind of hoping that I would just go to sleep 
and it would all be over. As happy as I was and as, right. as grateful as I was for my, my wife and kids, I just felt so desperate and so lost and so broken that I just wanted to shut everything off and never wake up again. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. Walking around some kind of lonely cloud. Rainy days and Mondays always get me. Welcome back. So we were talking about that Lauren had just hit a point where you had taken a bunch of pills in a rash moment and you were potentially comfortable with just going to sleep and everything kind of just going away. Now, this is the point that, Jennifer, you were talking about how there was a depression, things started to get weird and all of this. Had you kind of seen or had an idea that things were getting to this place, this dark place? So I knew that she was getting more and more depressed, but I had no idea why. And the only reason that she could give me was she felt like she wasn't providing enough for our family. Okay. So she felt like she needed to get me to the level um, where I was when she had met me. Okay. And so... You know, by the time I graduated from high school, my parents had everything. They're immigrants. They had nothing when they came here. And my parents were pretty wealthy when Lauren met me. Okay. And so she felt like she needed to give me that. Okay. Um, And so that was always her excuse, that she just felt like she wasn't good enough, that she wasn't providing enough for the family. And I really thought that that's what it was, but I couldn't figure it out because at that point, her business, um, the law office, was doing extremely well. She was taking in, um, you know, almost more than one attorney could handle. Okay. And we were looking to expand. So I didn't really understand that that was the reason. So in your head at that time, now I'm sure, you know, hindsight always being 2020, um, at that time, though, were you like, something is just not adding up. Like this, there's no way that's what this is about. Yes. And so Lauren and I have a different experience with the LGBT community because I grew up immersed in it. Okay. So my sister and I were in the arts, and I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't know someone that was gay, and we didn't call them transgender at the time, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we were surrounded with people that had a different lifestyle, and we thought it was just normal. Right. Um, You know, that they just did their own thing, and they weren't harming anyone, and they were some of the closest people to us. Um, But for Lauren, it was different, and... So when she, I got home and she called me upstairs and said that she was getting really sleepy, but she needed to tell me something that was really important. Okay. And I said, okay. Uh, And she she said, you're going to be really upset. And I said, okay. And so she wouldn't tell me. And so I started to guess. And I said, are you having an affair? And she Mm. kind of laughed and was like, no. (laughs) She's like, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, "When, when would we have time for that? Yeah. And... I said, well, can you just tell me because I can't guess? And she said, well, I just took all these pills. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Oh, wow. So she was still she of was... present mind to tell you after the fact. Yes. Oh, wow. So she was falling asleep, but she told me what she had taken. And I said, okay. what did you take? 
And okay. so she shows me all of the wrappers of all of the different medications that wow. she had tried with the psychiatrist. Some of them were antipsychotics. Some of them were, you know, medication that, um, you know, they they were all sorts of different just um, drugs, mm-hmm. I guess, that were used for depression, anxiety. Um, you know, bi- there were bipolar drugs. There was a whole mess of them. Okay. So I called one of my best friends, Kim, and I said, you know, you can you please come to the house and take care of the kids? And I'm going to go ahead and drive her to the hospital. So we drove to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, Lauren said, I don't think we should stay here because if we stay here and, you know, this becomes something like, and I end up in a hospital, like it could jeopardize my license. Wow. Okay. And so I thought, okay, well, was trying to assess because I have a lot of background in emergency medicine and I was trying to assess like how, you know, how poorly she was doing and she still was able to talk to me. Yeah. And so I thought, all right, well, we're just going to go home. Okay. So we went home. Um, she threw up a lot and um, she slept a lot and I just, you know, made sure that she didn't aspirate and it took about three days for her to get everything out of her system. Now, in your mind at this time, knowing, you know, the gravity of the situation, you have four kids, you've built this life, and you're taking care of her now for something self-induced, were you pissed? Thinking like, what the fuck were you thinking? Uh, actually, no. Um, because I'd not, I don't, I don't get pissed very easily. Apparently not. Um, <laughs> no. Because it's not, it wasn't about me. Okay. And I had to figure out what was going on. Good for you. Good. So I don't ever internalize other people's feelings or other people's, like, I'm empathetic, but I don't turn them into it being about me. Good for you. Um, So I don't get pissed very easily. So you're just trying to assess, like, okay, what did this, what caused this? I'm trying to figure out what happened. I knew that it wasn't just because she wasn't providing um, because I could see the books and okay. I could see the bank accounts and I could see how we lived. Yeah. And you're you know like, everything's I mean? fine. And yeah, yeah. And we had four kids and they were all in private school. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just couldn't figure it out. So we decided that she needed to go to a therapist. Right. And her assistant at the time, um, Geneva, who is one of the closest people to us and has been here, you know, with us the entire time to get us through almost everything. Um, you know, I had her at the office monitoring Lauren and everything seemed to be going okay. Okay. Um, and then she, it's just, it's almost as if like once she got past it, she pulled herself together and she, she wasn't going to do that anymore, but then she started drinking. (laughs) Um, so I don't, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, so you switch and I'm, I'm glad you said that. So. At this point now, when you say things got better, how long did things stay okay before the switch went from, okay, medicine's not the thing, so now I'm going to self-medicate with alcohol? How long was she functional before it started to switch into alcohol? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, so it, the, worst, the worst point was in 2015. So she probably convinced herself for a good year year and a half that she could do it and um she didn't start drinking until probably like heavily drinking until i don't know like 2015 to more end of 2013 beginning of 2014 okay okay gotcha 
Do you think that's accurate? It, it's. I don't remember a lot of that. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Um, alcoholically. So, all right. So, Lauren, so she's talking about how you just switched. And, you know, once again, you're out of trouble. You know, the pills are out. She was by your side. So now you're like, well, I'm still alive. So let's go ahead and make a go of this. What was your thoughts at that time? What was going through your head? Now I look like like this and I've got to go ahead and just make the best of this? Or what were you thinking? Well, I... I think I was still trying to figure out what was broken. Like, why I still, after all this, couldn't push through enough to beat it. Like, right. I, I was still in the mode to think that, you know, and, and Jennifer is big on this, and that, you know, it's mind over matter in most cases. And, and a lot of things you do in life, it's mind over matter. You can, if you put your mind to it, you, you apply yourself, you know, you, you can do it. Uh, and we teach our kids that. Um, and so I was just in that mode where I thought, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to just push harder. And in all honesty, at this time, literally the last thing on your mind, which seems absurd, I'm sure, now to you. But in retrospect, at that time, literally the last thing on your mind was to actually be honest. Yes. I, well, <laughs> I, honest with myself. I couldn't well, tell Well, with my- yourself or with even telling her, like, this is what I'm thinking. Am I crazy? Like, you just, you're like, I'm not, no matter what, I'm not saying that. I'd rather almost kill myself, go after alcohol. I'd rather do anything else than tell her. I was afraid I was going to lose everything okay. that I had. And so I started um, drinking by myself. And so I would go to the liquor store um, and I would work my way down the bourbon and whiskey aisle and I would buy one every other day bottle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I would um, never drink for pleasure, never drink socially. In fact, I wouldn't drink with other people. Like I, for me, I didn't want to be intoxicated in front of anyone. Cause who knows what you might say? Well, I, I didn't want, I guess I was afraid that I might say something about exactly me and I couldn't do it. So when the, everyone would go to sleep, I would go to the kitchen and I would pour several ounces and I would chug it. Was it so you could sleep without so, having to think? Yes. I wanted to knock myself out. Yep. So I had a mission not to um, feel better, but to be unconscious. Like I wanted to not be in my headspace. Um, and and it, it, at first it was hard physically, like to because that you build up a tolerance you can um handle more but i you know it was a mission and and i thought if if i can't handle it and i can't sleep and i i don't want to think about it the only you know and i can do these other things i'm functioning i'm you know i wake up and eventually didn't even have hangovers i mean i would literally i could drink knock myself out and never crave it until i needed it you know to just go to sleep so she she had no idea no, no she knew i was I drinking knew. So she would go to sleep yeah. and I would, she knew I was downstairs and I would just drink myself to sleep. And then wow. it became a routine. So at three o'clock in the morning, I would wake up between three and four, go downstairs and get her and drag her up the stairs because I didn't want the kids to find her passed out downstairs. Right. And it became an everyday thing. Um, and so I told her, you know, you really need to get help. And she basically told me that she doesn't want to live anymore. And she spiraled pretty hard. Um, How long before the suicide attempt had this been? 
Wait, how, how long? I'm sorry, how long since the suicide attempt had this been? That now she's saying, I don't want to live. Almost two years, two and a half years. So it wasn't until 2014 that she started to express that she just didn't want to be alive anymore. So it had been how long since the first suicide attempt? It was probably a year and a half. Okay, so a year and a half had passed. How long before you started noticing the drinking? So right at the end of... It was probably the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, where it was just odd behavior because she wasn't a drinker. Right. Um, And to go into it so hard, so fast, it was pretty clear. And so at first I was, she was falling asleep downstairs and I didn't know that she was drinking. Okay. And so I would go to get her from downstairs and tell her to come up and she would kind of stumble up the stairs and go to sleep. And I thought it was just because she was tired and she was working down there and had passed out on the couch. And it took me probably a good six months to realize that the reason why she was passed out was because she was chugging bourbon or whiskey. Mm. Um, and then at the end of 2015, we decided to take the kids to Disney, which wasn't abnormal because I think our oldest has been nine times. I okay. Don't know. Um, it was just that's where we took the kids. And we, Lauren just pulled out all of the stops for the vacation. Um, really, like, it was, it was a little ridiculous what we were going to spend to go. Mm-hmm. And we were going after Christmas. The day after Christmas, we left to go, and we were going to be there through New Year's. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, she was behaving really weirdly and would, like, cry when we were in certain rides. And I kind of felt like she was going, she was saying goodbye to us mm. because I knew that she was having, like, all of these suicidal thoughts. And I finally confronted her and... <laughs> in the one of the parks saying what's going on because she started crying when we were in this one ride mm-hmm. and she said i just can you just you know just let them have a good time because i want them to remember me like this wow and i thought okay mm-hmm. we're we are really in trouble and here we are in the middle of disney world with all four <laughs> yeah. of our kids and the kids are having a great time they have no idea what's going on and we're waiting for them to go to sleep so that we can have a discussion about what's going on mm-hmm And she still wouldn't, you know, I mean, and actually at that point, she had already told me. So I I guess I just jumped ahead. Um, She did finally tell me in October of 2015 that she thought that she was a woman. Okay. Um, And our trip was in December of 2015. And at that point, we both were just trying to process it and figure out what direction we were going to move in. But she had made the decision that we weren't going to move in any direction, that she wasn't going to do anything about it, and that she was just going to leave us with her big, huge insurance policy. Um, And that was that. So let's circle back real quick. So in October, when she said this to you, what was your first thought? So in October of 2015, you know, I really... Because she was drinking a lot. She was drinking a lot. And I had really been pushing her to tell me what was going on. And she kept saying, I can't tell you what's going on. Okay. Why can't you tell me what's going on? Because then you'll leave. Because I don't want to lose my family. And I thought, what could be so egregious that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to walk away from her? We've been together forever. Right. We've been dating since September of 1993. Right. Like, what makes you think that I'm going to walk away now? Right. Um, And so it just... You know, so we were in bed and I said, you've got to tell me what's going on. Like, and I said, are you gay? No. 
I don't like men. Okay. So you like women. Yes. Um, so, you know, are you having an affair? No. <laughs> right. Okay. So what else could it possibly be? Well, up until that point, me and Lauren and I had always had a really healthy um, sex life. Okay. And clearly for children later. Yeah. I mean, and we had done a lot of, you know, a lot of fun stuff and it seemed fun. And at that point we had already gotten to the point where she was comfortable enough to wear whatever and do whatever when we were in bed. And I thought that was just like, just fun and games. And I didn't realize that it actually was something. Okay. And so in my brain, I thought, huh, do you think that you're a woman? And You said said it first. Yes. And she said, yes. Mm. And I think that probably for the next six months, she wished that she had been able to take back telling me that that's what was going on. Because she wanted to leave our family and, you know, and take her life without me ever knowing that that is why she was going to take her life. On that note, we're going to go ahead and we're going to stop with this chapter and we're going to take a break. And I want everyone to remember to just trust me, okay? We'll be right back. I'm just a girl. 